Alrighty, we're ready to get started today. How is everyone doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in with us here today. Mr. Jeff Gannon, how are you doing over there? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you doing? I am doing great. As always, we hope everybody else is doing great. If you do want to get access to our website, go to focuscompounding.com. If you do sign up, use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, and it'll take some money off of your monthly price indefinitely, as long as you stay a member. A couple stocks been written up lately. There's one, a couple of actionable mm-hmm. ones. KLXI was put up there today, which okay. is a spinoff, a spin-off that's spin-off. happening by the end of Q3. Yep. We had a couple uh, in the last month. We've had two very illiquid stocks run up to that are not spinoffs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. Yep. So lots of uh, ideas that are pretty interesting coming through there. So for today, we are going to be talking or actually we're going to be doing a Q&A. So we tweeted okay. out um, a question or a call for questions. And if you do want to um, ask us a question for the future episode, you can either email us at info at focuscompound.com or follow us on Twitter. My Twitter is at Focus Compounds and Jeff's is at Jeff Gannon. Um, that's G-E-O-F-F Gannon. Um, but so we're just going to kind of roll with it. And okay. I'm pulling some from Twitter and also ones that people have emailed into us. So I'll give them their Twitter handle for Twitter. Um, but from the email, we'll just say whatever I, their name is, their first name. Okay. Sound good? All good. And Jeff has not seen these questions. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the real deal. Yep. All righty. So the first question comes from um, at Splits Capital. And he said, would like to hear your opinion on turnarounds and when you think investing in them is appropriate or not. Uh, it's appropriate to invest in turnaround when it's a fundamentally good business that had a temporary problem. Uh, I think a lot of times people talk about a turnaround in a business that, uh, is not fundamentally a good one. I was talking to someone recently about a turnaround that I had looked a lot at and didn't buy. Uh, what's that company? Brinks BCO is the ticker. Uh, and the reason why that would have been a good one to buy a few years ago, uh, this is going back like three years is because um, the armored car business is a great industry. Yeah. It's an oligopoly. And I was familiar with some companies in it, had read about them. And uh, this company had uh, really good operations in a bunch of different countries, but their operations in the U.S., which were very big, were not very uh, successful. And it was just a question of turning around the efficiency in there. Um, But fundamentally, it wasn't a competitive problem. The ones that you want to avoid, I think, are turnarounds that are, are a competitive issue mm-hmm. instead of an operational issue. So as in, like, their management just, I mean, the, their competitors are just eating them up, or what do you think? Right. So I think that uh, that uh, I, a turnaround of a restaurant that has continuously declining same-store sales, yeah, right? it's probably tough. That could be tough, right? Or uh, a fashion retailer that's that's out of favor for a long period of time, and you you don't unless the only way to play that is if you think you know something about fashion, or you sure. think you know something about restaurants that that other people don't. Um, so I think those are hard. But you go back to like when Buffett invested in turnaround in um, Geico, that was really an issue of just stopping writing all this bad business, getting out of New Jersey and some other places and, and things like that. And he had the right person in there. What do you think about like? comparing i guess papa john's situation to like domino's situation and sort of i guess that turnaround that is right. probably gonna have to take place in papa john's yeah that's interesting because we've looked at both those stocks yeah yeah um I, it's a really good industry right we know that's a really good industry so pizza. it's something that would in, that would interest me yeah uh, it would definitely interest me well, a lot because the product's durable it's not going to go away or yeah what? the economics yeah. Of, of pizza are, are really good and once uh, one company has a big lead um uh, they're in a good position. I mean, and Papa John's is, is, at, I mean, 
we we looked at this stock, so mm-hmm. we know a little bit more about it. But Papa John's is at a disadvantage to Domino's in the same way that like MoneyGram's at a disadvantage to Western Union. But in both those cases, they're way far ahead of a new entrant or someone like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I mean, there are some competitive risks. We've both eaten at the Chipotle concept, mm-hmm. uh, and you know that's a risk long term. Sure, obviously. But uh, yeah, it's, Papa John's is the kind of thing that you would look at, sure, because it could have issues that are um, temporary in nature. Sure. Yeah. So what about like Chipotle? Because I guess you could say they yeah. kind of have a turnaround process. That's you know. But again, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, I guess when you're dealing with food illnesses, that's probably a harder thing to turn around. It wasn't, the, I mean, I looked at it. The yeah. problem was that when that happened, both both times, it happened twice in a way that affected the stock. Um, it, it wasn't that cheap because uh, it was so good, expensive yeah. ahead of time. So, yeah. so it, the, and, and then the other thing actually that's interesting is sometimes a company learns the wrong lessons from these things. And I actually was concerned with Chipotle um, that the issue they had of a food safety issue um, can really cause them to change their policies on making things fresh and sure. stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And it's very easy to, it, it's very easy to improve the food safety issue if you uh, change how you source things in a way that would lead to worse ingredients in stores for, and that's the core of what they do, Yeah, you know? So uh, that is an interesting one. Like if they learn the wrong lesson and move away from the good business, right? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, it's. I think it's much, much better if it's not a competitive issue that's happening. If it's something that you think operationally they're just doing a bad job, mm-hmm. um, but that it's not their customers are all abandoning them for someone else. Yeah, yeah. What about like the whole Valiant uh, Pharmaceuticals saga, and and you know how? Okay, so they all that information came out, and then right. they worked to I guess sort of restructure the company, sell off some assets to raise cash. They brought in right. a new CEO. I guess that turnaround process is that something that you would probably steer away from. Probably, but you yeah. know, Valiant can have similarities to something like Tyco had, where some of the businesses that they bought were actually good businesses that were rolled up there. And so, you know, if the right person comes in, carves it up, and you're left with those good businesses, then that's going to be something attractive. It's something that acquires a bunch of different things, will um, own some stuff. It's good. In fact, I, I know I had researched something that Valiant ended up buying at one point. So I know that it's was a good business at one time that they bought. I don't yeah, know what sure. the state was when when they owned it and what they did with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that reminds me most, I would say, of Tyco, which is the same thing, that same many of the same issues, but bought legitimate businesses. Sure. Yeah. Got it. Cool. All right, so I'm going to jump back from email to, to Twitter. Okay. Um, the next one comes from a guy named John, and he says, in your most recent memo, you talked about our performance anxiety. Do you ever get it, and how do you guard against it to avoid making irrational investment decisions? And for those who don't know, mm-hmm. Jeff sends out a memo right. um, every single week, Some and point. this one was on our performance anxiety. Right. <laughs> so Clearly. you go to uh, focuscompounding.com. There's a box you put in your email, and then you'll just get this. Yes, uh, if you want to join It's a one-page memo, yeah. So, um, and it's usually not, inv- it's a not an investing topic. And that was what this one was. Um, yeah, well, I talked to a lot of people who are doing perfectly fine investing and yet, um, want to talk about people who are doing better than them. Sure. And what I mean by that is some of these people are doing 20% a year, right? What's but, good to you? Well, I talked about that in the memo. So in the long run, anyone, there's sort of two things to think about, I think which is about 10% a year, which is um, what you should expect the market to do in a very long term, that you're not going to do materially worse than the market if you're doing about 10% a year. And um, I think 20% a year, you're going to be doing as well as many of the best investors out there over a long time. 
Now, here's where the problem comes in, which is they feel great if they're doing 20% a year in some sort of bear market where a lot of other people aren't doing well. Mm -hmm. But when some people are doing 30, 40, or 50% for a year or two or three, but not for 15 years, um, then they get really worried, right? But some of those uh, approaches end up at at the top uh, percentile, you know, in terms of performance and then are down at the bottom. And you see that a lot with mutual funds that – it's not the ones that were ever in the best uh, 1% that have the best long-term returns. It's, you know, they were 75th, 80th or whatever, you know, uh, that they beat out uh, three quarters of the funds out there all the time rather than ever being in the top few funds, right? Same thing with investors. So uh, I think that 20% is, if you're doing 20%, I don't think you should be thinking about returns better than that. Yeah. I think you should be thinking about how can I make that 20% sustainable mm-hmm. rather than how can I make 30, 40, 50% uh, this year. And uh, that's something I talked about. And I, I went through like some in, investors like Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger and, and things like that and how their returns weren't much better than that for long periods of time. Yeah. And you also talked about a manager that, and you looked at the stocks that they own, mm-hmm. and they've performed incredibly well. And incredibly they, well, yeah. And they owned Herbalife, Credit Acceptance Corp. Yeah. What other ones were in there? Simpress. Yeah, Simpress. I site. guess very controversial type sure. of stocks. Yeah, yeah, very controversial stocks. Uh-huh. And um, a couple of them directly tied to uh, subprime consumer credit. Yeah. Um, which is great. They made a bet, and it worked out really well. But over a period of five years or something, that, that – um, bet could have gone the other way Mm -hmm. right so i think that those had i explained that those have business risks not just that the stocks are volatile that are different than what most people are investing in um and so i think you have to be careful when looking at that because you're not looking at the people who are doing worse than you and saying oh i'm really lucky that i avoided doing those things um but you're looking at these people and saying oh i should have done it as well as they have right and I, I see it a lot, and it's kind of surprising because if you look at some of the people who were incredibly successful investors, uh, the, and I mentioned like Walter Schloss and Warren Buffett and some of these others, uh, it's not like they did a lot better than 20% a, for many years in a row. Um, they just were able to have very high numbers for a very long period of time, and they got very rich from doing it. So what I was saying is uh, there's a, often you don't have to take a lot of risk to get rich, but you have to take a lot of risk to get rich quickly. Mm-hmm, and sure. so I think it's the getting rich quickly part that is the outperformance anxiety thing. Yeah. That it's about, oh, they're getting rich faster than I am. Mm-hmm. Rather than here I'm on a track, which is what I was trying to explain, the track of 10% a year all the time, the track of 20% a year all the time. Hitting those kinds of numbers consistently is going to achieve all the things that you want. Right. Mm-hmm. It's really going to be the years where you don't do that that's the problem in the long run when you put together that compounding record. Sure. And so I wouldn't be worrying about, you know, uh, being behind on some of those things there. So how do you guard against it? You think it's just understanding that it's really a, a marathon, not a sprint, and sort of setting your mind objectively like that? Or what advice would you give for that? Yeah, I think people should pay le- much less attention to performance. Yeah. And measuring it for a year, I think, is a bad idea. I just think that that's not helpful. Uh, it really doesn't tell you information that's useful for your stock picking. I think you need to be focusing all the time on what stocks you own and how good they would be if you had to hold on to them for the future. So instead of looking at the performance of your portfolio, constantly looking at your portfolio and ordering it, you know, this is the stock I like best. This is the one I like least. And then I was trying to say, well, what can I do to improve that least one? What mm-hmm. can I do to replace that one that I liked least and make it better? And that's doing something productive. Worrying about what your performance is is not productive. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And then just worrying about the actual businesses. I mean, you always say to me, you always propose the question, if this, if somebody came to you with this as a private deal, would you mm-hmm. want to do it? You know, take yeah. the price of the market out of it or whatever. Yeah, because the biggest thing is it's a significant lag between when you do smart things and when it pays off in the market for it, usually. For value, that's just it certainly is. So most of the things that I've done that were successful, I would say the like in terms of the greatest, um, at least in terms of the greatest acceleration in the stock price, so the time in which it would give you the biggest return annually in a single calendar year, we're talking about decisions you made two years ago are now kicking in. That's the kind of thing that's often happening, that it, you're getting your best returns in that stock two to three years after you picked it. And you might get nothing when you first pick it. And so you're patting yourself on the back for a really good performance, which is really based on the fact that you bought the right things two or three years ago. Yeah, sure. And so it's the wrong time now to be thinking, oh, I'm doing such a great job. You might not be doing such a great job picking things now. You know, mm-hmm. like the example that I gave of that, that investor, that was from three to five years ago, those choices that really you know paid off now. And so it's great when they're working out, but we don't know if the choices that he's making now are very good at all. And yet people look at the performance now and think that. Right, because there's such a lag. Sure. That's a big part of it. Great. Next question comes from Herminator on Twitter, and he says, guys, what are your thoughts about values or about values underperformance in the past decade? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on this? Because well, I mean, you, you think about You haven't it. had value outperformance. <laughs> you have not experienced value outperforming. Yeah, well, I, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at guys like Einhorn, right, who, mm-hmm. who are traditional value guys, and they've really underperformed. Right. Um, you know, but... And you listen to guys like Howard Marks, for example, or all these mm-hmm. other big shots that, uh, you know, talk about how people, they sort of define value differently over time to sort of justify right. it. Um, you know, you look at, like, for example, all these people investing in uh, Facebook and all these other companies mm-hmm. that people probably wouldn't call value, right. you know, more so growth. Um, but I think it'll just be interesting to see, I guess, if the market turns sort of what's going to happen, you know, with a lot of those stocks. Yeah, so some people think that there's a change in the economy that's caused this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of it is also just a change in um, a change caused in the stocks by having very um, long time of pretty benign um, stock price situation. So, so what do you mean by like, that? Well, so I was looking at some stocks um, today uh, that are good examples of this, which uh, I think are good companies, good, excellent uh, brands and businesses uh, that stood out to me are like uh, Sherwin-Williams and uh, WD-40. Those really stood out because these are not FANG stocks. These mm-hmm. are not stocks that can um, you know, grow to the, uh, the sky and all these things. Uh, they're fundamentally what they were decades ago in terms of what their competitive position was and what their future might be. And they're good, and they've grown and, and done all these things. But they're being priced at EV to EBITDA multiples that are probably double what they should be, you know, to to get really good returns. So those sorts of things are getting into the area of like the nifty 50 type stuff. And it's because they're so reliable that they performed well for a while, but then the momentum gets carried away. Mm -hmm. And so because the stock's gone up year after year, they start to get priced at a ridiculous level. That is something that you saw at the end of the 1990s. For the most part, you don't see a lot of it today, but you see some things, and it's in some of the super predictable sorts of companies. And so that will snap back. Those stocks will perform uh, badly. The businesses will be fine, mm-hmm. but they're that priced so prices. high yeah. that for the next 10, 15 years, they'll have poor returns. And that's what you saw um, in the Coca-Colas and Gillette's and um, Home Depots and all these things that were perfectly good businesses, but from 2000 to you know 15 years later, did not have good returns. Um, 
because they were priced so high uh-huh. at the very peak, right? And so I think that that kind of stuff will snap back. But there's other things that may not, um, you know. And so we'll see how that is. Uh, I mean, the price to book thing is interesting because you know obviously book value matters a lot less now than what it used to with than it did yeah. in the past. Yeah. Um, but there are stocks that are not value stocks in other measures too. They're just very expensive. Um, even when you're not talking about price to book, but some of the biggest, um, companies, um, are not really that expensive. I mean, Warren Buffett owns Apple and when he bought Apple, it wasn't really that expensive on, um, the traditional value measures of earnings. Now it was on other measures like a book and things like that. But what do you think of, I mean, how do you differentiate between value and growth like why is it such a you know what i'm saying like could you would you consider apple a value stock um yeah i uh, i would consider apple more of a value stock than a growth stock i mean what isn't i mean when people say value right they always say i mean it's just it's paying less than what you think it's worth right obviously sure. and people well, could say that about you know purchasing like tencent facebook and netflix and google today that they may say well it's, i think it's cheaper than what's going to be in the future yeah no i mean i wrote a blog post about the fact that facebook and google for example can't be long-term growth companies they're too big and so they're they're basically advertising supported uh, companies so their market is advertising worldwide um that can grow a little bit but not a huge amount and as a percent of gdp so it can't grow that much faster than gdp they're growing phenomenally uh faster than gdp and once they become most of that market, then the market growth has to come Slow down tremendously. Down. Yeah, and that's what happens with all technology things. So uh, I, I think it's something of an oxymoron to say, like, truly giant growth companies. Mm-hmm. Okay? There are a few of them that, that's been true for, for now. But in the long run, that won't be true. Apple, I guess you could say, is see, it's a Buffett stock. And they're not what we talk about as value stocks. Because Buffett isn't really a value investor. Um, in terms of what he buys today in the way that academics think about it. See, when I think of like value stock, I think mm-hmm. of like like cool or MLP or okay. all these so, other stuff. So those are asset-related yeah, stocks. Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, one of the biggest ones is if there's inflation, obviously. So asset-related things will do really well if there's inflation. Um, and there's more inflation now than there has been in a long time. So that's one of the reasons. Sure. Um, I, I think... Yeah, so the examples that you're giving are those are all asset related companies, mm-hmm. not earnings related things. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if that'll turn around a lot. The price to book thing, if price to book will outperform. Price to book, I've always thought was kind of the weakest of the value indicators. Why is that? Uh, I don't think it makes a ton of sense historically why it performs well. Um, and it's kind of. it. We talk a lot about other things like buying the. Um, in an industry group or something, buying the one with the lowest EV to EBITDA or EV to sales or things like that, that is more what I think a private buyer would look at. I don't think that a private buyer is usually looking at um, book value. Now, we have a couple of things in the managed accounts that are asset plays, but remember, they're not cheap on price to book. They're cheap versus what we think the market value of the asset is. Mm-hmm. But actually, in both cases, the, the price to book is really high because the asset is listed on the books at an incredibly low price, right? Sure. Yeah. So... You know, how does an academic capture that? How do they put that in something to show that it's a value stock? Right? No, it's great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's cheap versus it's 
market value, uh, what we think an appraisal of it would a be. A private buyer would Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and actually everyone agrees with that. Even people who don't like the stocks and would disagree with us would still say it's worth multiples of book value. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a price to book of two, three, four, they would say, oh, that's cheap for this stock. But there's no way that, that academics can look at that and say, okay, because the price to book is two or three or four, that's not a value stock. Mm-hmm. That's why price to book, I, price to book is definitely my least favorite value indicator, yeah. Got it. Cool. Thank you, Hermanator, for asking that question. Next question actually comes from a guy named Andrew. Okay. I did not write this. All right. And he says, do you ever factor in certain political things in your investing decisions? For example, Trump becoming president and how during the campaign he talked about lowering taxes. No. Short answer, no. The short answer is no. Did you ever think about, so you thought about there was nothing that, nothing. Yeah, I can't anything. think of anything where the political uh, issue would have factored in. Cool, but you started to think about it when the tr- the new tax code obviously became a thing. Oh yeah, we talked about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and Warren Buffett talked about that and said, "Look, there's a better." I mean, he talked about it before it happened and said, "There's a much better chance than people than stocks are reflecting that this could happen." Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, in the manager accounts, we have two stocks that I thought were cheap because they hadn't factored in um, the fact that they were paying almost 40% in taxes and it would go down to 20-something percent because all their business was in the U.S. and in particular states that were high tax and things like that. So, yeah. Um, and I wrote something about that with advertising agencies where the ones that had most of their money in the U.S., most of their revenue in the U.S., didn't seem to uh, have any Reflected. price movements different yeah. than ones that were in other countries which weren't cutting their taxes. So, yeah. I felt the tax thing wasn't incorporated into stocks correctly. Yeah. Cool. Next question comes from, it's actually the first guy, Spitz Capital again on Twitter. He says, also, value investing in the 21st century, what does toll bridges and consumer monopolies look like these days? Um, Advertising agencies? No. <laughs> well, we just, well, we talked about uh, Facebook and Google. Yeah. So it can look like that. I would think Facebook. Yeah. Or Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It can look like Amazon because Amazon is controlling that. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, so when we talk about brands and things like that, so why are brands successful when Warren Buffett invests in these things? They're successful because they have distribution. They have the point of contact with the customer. So basically, it's because they have shelf space. It's not that like Colgate is this tremendous brand that everyone wants to go out and buy Colgate on the internet. Yeah. It's that wherever they go in all these different countries, um, without having to think about toothpaste, somehow Colgate's there. And their competitors aren't, right? So they already own this space. Well, when you get to things like Amazon, Amazon Prime, right? Um, You have many people starting their search at Amazon. If they're thinking about a product, they're not typing into Google anymore. They're going to Amazon and typing in a product name. Mm -hmm. So that's becoming a monopoly in terms of owning the consumer at the top of the funnel and moving them down to whatever it is, controlling that experience. And that's like having prime real estate. That, that is mental real estate that they have in terms of people's habits, which is the same as if you had the best place for a department store in a city mm-hmm. or if you had the best shelf space, which is what you know a lot of those consumer brands had. And so shelf space has become somewhat less valuable that way and controlling the experience of the customer that way has been. Um, and when I mention Google, I should say I mean as much YouTube as Google. And when we say Facebook, that's true also, yeah. Cool. Next question. This is a good one. And I know we've sort of talked about it a little bit. It's, what's your opinion? It's from Chris from the e- an email. What's your opinion on shorting and why don't you do it? So I guess he kind of knows your opinion because he knows that you don't do it. But uh, yeah, I don't do it. Um, I think it's not a good idea uh, because it's brutal, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of problems with it. Um, so uh, we've sort of talked about before one there. There's a positive return generally in stocks. 
So a lot of them don't do well. And so, uh, but if you were shorting a hundred random stocks, then over time you'd perform badly. Okay. Whereas if you were going long a hundred uh, random stocks, you would perform well. Now it's true that a large part of that is because some of them are performing really well. It's not because all of them are, are uh, doing okay. So yes, there should be a lot of the stocks that go to zero, but it's just built into it a, a problem that way. Secondly, you are paying to borrow. Mm-hmm. Sure. And then uh, thirdly, I think that all the incentives are uh, against you. I think that was the best explanation you've ever given yeah. on it. Actually, the shorting when you were talking about this is probably like early top. I mean, early like one through ten episodes probably. Mm-hmm. But you were talking about shorting and and you were saying how you know think about like Berkshire Hathaway, right? Right. Who I mean, the incentives were there for that company to to somehow work out, right? You know, and there's there's, yeah. there's so many incentives for a business not to fail. Um, yeah, you know, shorting is a very tough game. Yeah, we talked about that because we had two write-ups on, on, on the website, uh, J2 Global and um, Simpress, yeah. which some people shorted and which the original business had some issues and may at one point have been very overvalued or whatever. But the point is they took free cash flow from that business and invested in other things. Same thing you mentioned Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway, now it's easy for people to think, well, Warren Buffett is a genius and everything. Sure. But you could have said, well, yes, he's a genius, but... Um, people do this with uh, Eddie Lampert. You know, they said, okay, well, it doesn't matter how good he is at investing because he's uh, attached to Sears, you know, and the, that business is going to go down. And shorting can work out and, you know, has worked out in the case of Sears. But the whole time, Sears was trying to do things to spin off things, to take free cash flow from it and sell off brands, to do all these things. That's a lot to overcome that the incentives of everyone involved is really to drive up the stock price, right? is to create value over time and to make this work. And there's when you short something, there's no one on your side in trying to make this happen. Even when you talk about like competitors or something, competitors aren't actually trying to drive Sears out of business. They're just trying to win on their own. Yeah, sure. And so if Sears could figure out ways to do that in a way that didn't go head-to-head with other companies, they wouldn't care. They're, they are not going out there to try to put them out of business. So there are lots of people trying to do everything they can to make the business a success, and there's no one when you're shorting on your side trying to make it a failure. Mm-hmm. That's just not happening. So sure. I think that all the incentives are in the wrong uh, side that way. And it's an advantage that you have buying into a company that your incentives are aligned with management as a stockholder. It's a lot less painful too, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's an issue with shorting that is also, as you know, people go uh, public with it often yeah. and talk about it. And uh, they become very committed to it in this fight against management and things like that. And I think that's part of it is that I was saying, you know, normally your incentives are aligned. But if they're not, then it can get into uh, – you. Can, your conviction about it can become very warped and you spend too much time on it and things like that. And, you know, you can see that with um, – uh, you know, like I think earlier you mentioned David Einhorn. David Einhorn, you know um, – I don't know how much time he spends thinking about the long stocks and getting worked up about, oh, management is incompetent. Yeah, sure. Versus the short stocks and, oh, management is, you know, uh, misleading people and pumping this up and whatever. And, you know, because that's just the way it is. Your incentives are against them. And so you get all uh, upset about it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that happens to lots of people. Lots of people. I see that's something that you want to keep out of either side. I see that in value investors sometimes who buy into stocks and get upset that management isn't doing all the things that they want, right? And so it becomes like a um, a matter a moral issue, 
right? And I don't think that's a good way to invest to think that this is to think that you're morally right and you're going to prove something. Yeah. and that's part of the investment the thesis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, so th- those are some of the reasons for not shorting. I, I th- think I think my first lesson to my children on investing is going to be to never short a stock. I don't think you need to do it. Um, sure, people can do it and can make some money doing it. Um, I also think that the reasons that most people short are not good reasons, which are I think that they think it um, will smooth out performance, and they think that it will. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- that's basically it. I think they think it will smooth out performance, especially over very short periods of time. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of professionals do it. It's very popular with professionals for that reason. It's, And they'll even admit that if you talk to them, that it's not that they think in the long run their performance will be better, but that they think this the shorts will perform well when the longs aren't, so that on a monthly basis, on an annual basis, their record will look better but they actually don't believe that shorting will add returns over 15 years or something. And so as a private investor doing this, anything that's not working over the very long term, it doesn't matter what year it's happening in and how smooth it's making your returns. It's just not something that you should be focused on. Yeah. So. No, I think that's a good explanation. Okay, last question. Okay. All-time favorite book. He didn't specify investing or not. It's by a guy named Jake. Okay. So let me say, well, let's do investing book because I'm sure I talked about my favorite book in some podcast that we did a long time ago. Um, my fa- Go top three, actually. Top three? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so top three, let's see. I would say um, you can be a stock market genius. Uh, the Snowball. <laughs> That's my first two. <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's see. Uh, whew. That's hard. I think that my, uh, I'm going to say probably that my third would be. Um, Better not be my third. No, it won't be your third. Okay, good. Uh, my, my third, I think, would probably be Phil Fisher's book, uh, which actually has been bundled up. So let's pretend that that entire bundle can be the book. Yeah. So uh, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits and Other Writings. Because actually, I really like the Conservative Investor Sleep Well, which is actually a separate book. It was published separately. Do you like but, his son as an investor? I have no comment on that. No. <laughs> Come on, let's start some stuff up. <laughs> no, mine would be, you can be a stock market genius. Um, this is published books. You can be stock market genius, the snowball, even though that's really more, I think, a book, a book on life. Mm-hmm. Um, is it the War- Hagstrom, Warren Buffett yeah. way? Or yeah. Warren Buffett? Mm-hmm. Port- I mean, I thought that was a great book. Yeah. Um, but then like other books, but my top, I guess, three books investing or not my number one would probably be why we sleep i talked to you about that okay. book that's a great book for people that uh um if you if you're not getting enough sleep man that's important so matthew walker it's <laughs> an important book whenever okay. someone asks me a favorite book i always suggest that one okay probably poor charlie's almanac okay poor i love charlie's that one going, yeah. and then it would probably be stock market genius okay. um snowball mm-hmm. and then uh, um warren buffett portfolio yeah those are pretty good books mm-hmm. what's your favorite non-investing book though I think I mentioned this before, um, uh, Casino Royale. Oh, okay. Which is the first uh, Ian Fleming Yeah, book. I think yeah. you did say that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, for everyone listening, go read Why We Sleep. It's okay. A, it's, it's an important book. Very important. And I should say Ken, uh, Ken Fisher wrote a wonderful forward to the latest edition of the Phil Fisher one. So Yeah. Yeah, so you asked about that. So he did write a very nice forward for that, yeah. That is that is. But what about him as an investor? I have no comment on that. His, their RA is pretty big. I'm pretty sure they're yeah, like fifty sure billion or something. Uh, you can see, notice they're marketing for it. I love it because if you look at his Twitter, 
he cla- he calls himself a self-made billionaire. Okay, well that's true. It's, no, he is. But I just thought it was I mean, Phil funny. Fisher wasn't that wealthy. Yeah, no, I just thought it was funny. Phil Fisher very put his bio. Yeah, yeah, cool. Alrighty, well, we want to thank everybody for tuning in with us here today. If you do, we talked about it, right? Your memos, we talked about your outperformance anxiety memo that you mm-hmm. send out. If you do want to join that list, go to focuscompounding.com. And on the homepage, you will see a spot to enter in your email. Mm-hmm. And other than that, do you have anything else to add? Nope, that's it. You know, go to focuscompounding.com and uh, you can get $10 off if you become a member. And of course, I wanted to say, uh, you can do the email info at focuscompounding.com and that's how you can ask questions for the next time we yes. do this Q&A. Bring it right to me. I did want to actually say for yeah. everyone that is listening, obviously this is free. Okay. If you want to help Mr. Jeff and I out, okay. go to iTunes and give us a review or a rating. Right. That would yeah. help spread the word. Okay. Um, if you think that we've added any sort of anything beneficial to your investing uh, toolkit and you want to help us out, that would be incredibly beneficial to us because it obviously would help us spread the word. Okay, so you go there and you give us like a five-star review or something. I would I would hope it's five-star. <laughs> okay. I'm kind of nervous opening up the app now, but yeah, no, but if you want to do that, that would be great. Okay. Other than that, thank you very much. We will see you next week. Have a great week. Take care.